I've oftentimes talked about the stark parallels between the Negro Leagues and historically Black colleges and universities and the deep-rooted connection that the two have. Oftentimes, Negro League players have been portrayed as vagabonds, hobos, illiterates. They were just doing whatever they could to try and make a living playing baseball. Well, that is truly a misnomer. One of the little-known but very profound factoids around the Negro Leagues is that a remarkable percentage of Negro League players were indeed college-educated athletes. Nearly 40% of them were college-educated athletes. As my friend Buck O'Neill would oftentimes share to the amazement of those who would be listening to him, less than 5% of those who played in the major leagues at that particular time during that era of American segregation had any college education. And there was a reason behind it because the major leagues quite simply did not want them to go to college. They wanted to grab you right out of high school, put you into their farm system, and then have you work your way to the big leagues. Well, the Negro Leagues didn't have that kind of sophisticated farm system. So what did they do? They oftentimes trained on the campuses of historically black colleges and universities and thus would play the black college baseball teams and would recruit a great deal of their workforce from those HBCUs. Names like 1952 Rookie of the Year with the Brooklyn Dodgers, Joe Black, attended Morgan State University. Hall of Fame pitcher, one of the greatest left-handed pitchers in Negro Leagues history and one of the greatest left-handed pitchers in baseball history, the great Willie Foster, would attend Alcorn College at that time. My dear friend, the late, great Monty Irvin, who could have been the first man to walk on the moon in the major leagues, matriculated at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. My dear friend, mentor, and confidant, and most recent Hall of Fame inductee, John Jordan Buck O'Neill, attended Edward Waters College in Jacksonville, Florida. The legendary Hilton Smith Hall of Famer, star pitcher for the Kansas City Monarchs, went to Prairie View A&M. That's just a sampling of the tremendous talent that emerged from those historically Black colleges and universities who found their way to the Negro Leagues. And one more fascinating story as it relates to that educational experience that is part of our Negro League story. And this is one that I really love. Ball player by the name of Grady Orange. And Grady Orange, y'all, played in the Negro Leagues so that he could generate enough tuition money to send himself to Meharry Medical School, where he became a doctor and finished at the top of his class. Yeah, those stories are plentiful. And it makes the story that we're going to talk about today as we look at, again, the connection between the Negro Leagues and historical Black colleges and universities to have an opportunity to look at 
the crossover nature of the athletes who call the Negro Leagues home. And you've heard me on Black Diamonds talk about these players from the standpoint as being some of the greatest athletes to ever play baseball. Because quite frankly, they could have played anything. These were, by and large, multifaceted athletes who excelled in any number of sports. But again, to make a living professionally in a team sport, you really played baseball during that era. As been noted, basketball and football were more or less collegiate sports. And so the greatest athletes were gravitating to baseball. The best white athlete was playing in the major leagues. The best brown and black athlete called the Negro Leagues home. And so for us to venture over to the gridiron, it's not really out of sorts. Because there were a number of great football players who called the Negro Leagues home. Jackie Robinson, of course, was an all-American football player. And while he didn't attend an HBCU, he did attend Pasadena City College and UCLA. And as we've also discussed, baseball was perhaps his weakest sport. Much better basketball, football, track athlete than he was baseball player. And so... Recently, we introduced an exhibition called Barrier Breakers. And as noted, the Barrier Breaker exhibit chronicles all of the players who broke their respective Major League teams' color barriers. We've installed a permanent exhibit here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and we introduced a groundbreaking traveling exhibition that debuted this year on April 15th to commemorate the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's breaking of Major League Baseball's color barrier, appropriately, at Dodger Stadium in L.A. And while the exhibit celebrates all of baseball's integration pioneers, we also wanted to focus on the other major sports barrier breakers. In hockey, it was my dear friend, the legendary Willie O'Ree, who would integrate the Boston Bruins in 1958. In the NBA, it was a great basketball player by the name of Earl Lloyd, although it would be a former Negro leaguer, Nat Sweetwater Clifton, who would be the first to sign an NBA contract. Earl Lloyd would beat him to the floor with the Detroit Pistons. But Nat Sweetwater Clifton had signed a contract prior to Lloyd joining the Pistons, but Lloyd beat him to the floor. Nat Sweetwater Clifton, y'all, was a six-foot-eight-inch first baseman for the great Chicago American Giants. And of course, in the National Football League, it was Fritz Pollard. Fritz Pollard, coincidentally, would break the color barrier in the National Football League the same year that the Negro Leagues were being formed here in Kansas City in 1920. And then in 1921, he would become the first black head coach in National Football League history. And so it's not far-fetched that we would have a conversation built around football. And that's exactly what we will do today on Black Diamonds as I get the opportunity to sit down with a dear friend of mine who is part of a tremendous effort to bring professional baseball to Nashville, to bring Major League Baseball to Nashville, as I should say. And when we're successful, the team would be called the Nashville Stars after the old Negro Leagues team. Of course, if you listen to the episode where I got a chance to sit down with Dave Stewart, 
former Major League pitching great Dave Stewart. And Dave is part of this team that has been organized. And I'm thrilled that the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is part of it to try and bring an expansion Major League Baseball team to the great city of Nashville. As I mentioned, the team would be named the Nashville Stars after the old Negro Leagues team, which is very exciting for me, very exciting for the museum. And I think tremendously exciting for all of us who are clamoring to see greater diversity in the game that we all love, baseball. And so Eddie George is part of that group. And of course, Eddie George is also the head football coach at Tennessee State University. And so we'll sit down and talk a little bit about his role mentoring and leading young men at Tennessee State University, a look back at his own Heisman Trophy award-winning career, and find out his vision as being part of this team that is working so diligently to bring Major League Baseball to Nashville. And we'll tie it all together, utilizing the spirit of the Negro Leagues. That's next on Black Diamond. Help continue the legacy of Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill by visiting thanksamillionbuck.com. With one million donations of just a single buck or more, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum can move closer to completion of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center on the historic site of the Paseo YMCA, where the Negro Leagues were born in 1920. We'll teach not only the stories of Negro Leagues baseball, but also math and science through the lens of baseball history in the spirit of baseball's greatest ambassador, Buck O'Neill. Log on to thanksamillionbuck.com and donate today. Every buck counts. Well, I am really excited to welcome to Black Diamonds someone who I've gotten to know and you've all have probably followed this young man's career. 1995 Heisman Trophy winner at the Ohio State University. 14th overall pick to the Houston Oilers in 1996. Spent a season with the Dallas Cowboys. Was NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year in 1996, four-time Pro Bowl, 2001 All-Pro. His number 27 has been retired twice at his alma mater and, of course, with the Tennessee Titans. And I'm thrilled to be talking a little bit of football, which, again, all roads ultimately lead back to the Negro Leagues with the legendary Eddie George, who is <laughs> now mentoring and teaching young people about life playing this game at Tennessee State University, head coach of Tennessee State University's football team, Mr. Eddie George. Welcome to Black Diamonds. Man, Bob, good seeing you, my friend. Uh, it's it, always a pleasure, brother. Always a pleasure seeing you, man. <laughs> it, it, it is great to see you. And let me be, I'm sure, probably the number 1,000 person to uh, congratulate you on the, the work that you're doing now because for you to make the decision to come back and coach 
Because this is kind of rarefied air that both you and we've seen this kind of recent over recent times with big name athletes coming back to give back by teaching. You're doing it at TSU, of course. Dion is doing it over at that other school, Jackson That's State right. University. That's right. <laughs> and you're both doing tremendous jobs. What motivated you to do this? Because it is rare that you see those who have been so successful at their trade that eventually comes back and coaches. And and I think what I'm seeing now, and I hope is a trend of big name individuals who are coming back to teach and particularly at that HBCU level and bringing a new shine to HBCUs. What motivated you to want to do this? Um, Well, coaching was never on the forefront of my mind. It was not my priority. Um, I spent a lot of my time developing my craft as an actor, um, an entrepreneur, um, as a father. You know, I started my own wealth management business six years ago. I was in the process of building that and still am. Uh, But what resonated with my spirit was the ability to do God's work through coaching and to give back to the game that gave so much to me and allowed me to, to have the lifestyle that I have, but more importantly, the principles and a blueprint that I have to be successful um, after the game of ball as a, as a husband and as a father. Um, when it was first presented to me, I, I fought against it, <laughs> but just like anything else, it was a God given dream. It haunts you. And it just kept coming up in my spirit. So I kept having ideas of all the things that I would do. If I was going to build a team, how would I start my team? You know? And, um, I got creative with thoughts like my winter conditioning program would look like this. And I'm thinking of infrastructure and business and, you know, um, how can I enhance the blue, the, the footprint of this university? You know, so I've been living here in Nashville, Tennessee for, you know, 20 some odd years. And I'm familiar with the, the great brand here at Tennessee state, not just as in athletics, but as, as an institution and the individuals that have come through this, this program. And, uh, the fact that I was, it was in my backyard. I didn't have to go very far. I can watch my youngest son continue to play football and to be honest with you, Bob, to take on a new challenge. Uh, I played the game. I've never coached the game in terms of traditionally coming up through the ranks as a GA, then as position coach, and then as a coordinator, and then going on to become a head coach. I'm coming in from the top down, um, bringing what I know to this as a leader, as a person that's going to delegate, that's going to galvanize my coaching staff, and the staff that's on the external before I even hit the team. So it's, it was a combination of everything and it, um, it did not impact or hinder my current life. I'm staying at home. I'm able to uh, build a program. I'm able to still be a family man. Uh, but more importantly, I had to align my dreams, my goals, my desires with God's purpose and plan. And it had to feel right in my sphere before I pulled the trigger on it. And I checked the boxes on all those criteria points. And here I am, uh, second year in. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's, you know, and that's it. I mean, sometimes, and I tell people all the time, we all are here for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes we don't always identify with that purpose. And right. other times we run from that purpose. And then there are those who embrace that purpose. And I think that's where the haunting comes in. I think yes. you're doing what you were actually called to do because mm-hmm. you have a lot to give back to these young men. You know, you're molding and building young men no matter what else occurs after their careers at TSU. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And you just happen to have been in Kansas City just shortly before the big announcement was made. You're here in Kansas City with a, a delegation of others. We're all involved with this effort to bring Major League Baseball to Nashville. We're thrilled to have you as a part of that team. And of course, if the team, if we're successful or when we're successful, the team will be called the Nashville Stars. And so John Lohr and others, along with yourself, were here in Kansas City. We're sitting down eating some Kansas City barbecue. When you shared with me what was about to happen. And man, I I was excited for you and I'm excited for the young people whose lives you're going to touch. What was your memory of being here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Oh, what did that mean yeah. to you? Well, Bob, you did a, an exceptional job of guiding us through the tour. Um, the, the space is very intimate. It is um, graced with just memorabilia and artifacts from the past. Very nostalgic. And it brings you into that time. And you can feel the energy of the former players. Um, And it was just uh, such a a thrill to see the impact that African-Americans have had on Major League Baseball and professional sports. And to understand that the Negro Baseball League was a thriving, successful business venture. And one thing that you pointed out was it was at major cities in Philadelphia and Baltimore. was, I think was in Milwaukee. Milwaukee had a team briefly. Detroit, yes, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Atlanta. And, and how it was a mainstay. It was a pillar in the community for African-Americans where it, th- it was thriving businesses. I mean, it wasn't um, these downtrodden cities. It was successful African-American businesses. And, I guess, you know, just to understand the history behind that and how these players were. I mean, these, some of these baseball teams could beat Major League Baseball's uh, team back then. They were just yes. so talented. Um, and just the individuals, the different characters, the different uh, players that have played in the game um, was really uh, wonderful to see. And I would advise any – you don't even have to love baseball or sports, but just the, the history and to – be enlightened and to be educated on the, the the this 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 particular time in our history and the the the, the museum that's there. Um, I advise anyone to go there and witness that. That should be on everyone's bucket list before they take the bucket. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that, and and I obviously I'm biased, but I concur. I really believe that this is kind of really a very important journey. And for, and I've said this on a number of occasions for the African American and Hispanic athlete, no matter what sports discipline you might play, 
This is Mecca. You know, this is where your roots are anchored. And, and you'll hear me so oftentimes talk about the ball players who call the Negro Leagues home as some of the greatest athletes to ever play baseball because they could have played anything. Yeah, they could have played anything. You know, right. But back then, basketball and football were still more or less considered a collegiate sport. And so to really make a living, you played baseball. So Major League Baseball got the best white athlete. The Negro Leagues got the best black and brown athletes. But when I talk, and we and I had an opportunity to talk about this, when I tell people that Jackie Robinson's weakest sport was baseball, that was his weakest sport. Eddie, he was a much better basketball, football, track athlete than he was baseball player, and some say an even better tennis player. So there was absolutely nothing that Jackie Robinson could not do. (laughs) And of course, he becomes an All-American football player at UCLA. And of course, we have this wonderful photograph of one of the most dynamic collegiate backfields in college football history. And as a photograph of Jackie Robinson, Kenny Washington, Mm. and Woody Strode. And of course... Yes, yes, yes. Kenny, 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 yes. Washington, Kenny Washington, as you know, would re-break the color barrier in the National Football League. The color barrier itself had been broken by a guy named Fritz Pollard. Uh-huh. And Fritz Pollard, in very similar fashion to a guy in black baseball history named Moses Fleetwood Walker. Moses Fleetwood Walker, we recognize as the first known black because he was of darker skin. There was another guy by the name of William Edward White who had played on a major league team one game in the 1800s before Moses Fleetwood Walker, but William Edward White did not know he was black. He thought he was white because his father was white, but he was the byproduct of an affair that his father had with one of the slaves. And so he identified as white, but was discovered that his mother was indeed black, which made him technically the first black to play on a major league team. But Moses Fleetwood Walker was of darker skin. And Moses Fleetwood Walker was basically exiled from Major League Baseball by his teammates who formed a gentleman's agreement that essentially banned him from playing on those white Major League teams. Well, the same thing happened with Fritz Pollard. So the same year, 1920, when the Negro Leagues were being established here in Kansas City, Fritz Pollard integrates the National Football League. And then in 1921, he becomes the NFL's first black head coach. Wow. But then Fritz Pollard and other brothers who were playing at that time eventually get kicked out by that exact same gentleman's agreement that kicked Moses Fleetwood Walker out of Major League Baseball. It kicked Fritz Pollard and several other African-American players out of the National Football League Kenny Washington, Jackie Robinson's backfield teammate, would re-break the color barrier in about 1942, and then Jackie would break the color barrier in Major League Baseball five years later. Wow. And and what's even more interesting is Jackie Robinson was likely a better football player than Kenny Washington, and Kenny (laughs) Washington was a better baseball player than Jackie Robinson. That is crazy. (laughs) They're they're both Hall of Fame. You know, and, and, and see, that's the, and that's the stuff that, you know, people need to hear. 
you know, is that Jackie Robinson was a better football player than he was a baseball player. We all know his 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 uh, his story and his legacy that he's left on the baseball diamond is it's really phenomenal. And that's the stories you're going to hear there. And and the food was amazing too in Kansas City. So <laughs> it uh, I, I really enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed talking to you. I enjoy um, you know this process of of trying to. Um, bring Nashville up in major league baseball. Yeah. And it's important. It really is. I, I, given where we are in this day and age, um, the lo- the possible location here in Nashville would pay homage to the reason why the Negro league was established was to bring economic relevance in that, in that area to have an economic boom. And it would do that here will be a jolt in the arm of a certain part of town in Nashville that could really help it. And it pays homage to uh, the Negro baseball league. Uh, the name is from, yes. uh, is, is a national, yes. uh, the national yeah. stars. Yeah. No, so it no, pays homage no. to that as well. No, it, it, it's a special opportunity. I had Dave Stewart here recently. And of course, Stu is part of that, part of our team and working so diligently to try and create a majority minority investment mm-hmm. team to lead this effort, which would make it the first since the Negro Leagues to have that. Yes. And, and so that too would be historic because sometimes lost in the romanticism of these incredibly gifted athletes who, as I like to say, forged a glorious history in the midst mm-hmm. of an inglorious time in American history is easy to fall in love with the fact of what they had to deal with and how they endured and overcame, that we do lose sight. And you alluded to this early in the program that Negro Leagues Baseball was the third largest Black-owned business in this country. You see, Eddie, it only trailed Black-owned insurance companies who emerged during that era of American segregation and would essentially insure African-Americans 10 to 15 cent policy, just Mm. enough to bury us. And Black-owned insurance companies came about, not only insured my livelihood, but insured my stock, insured my crop, insured my home, and as a result, made millions of dollars. Next, of course, was Madam C.J. Walker, who would become this country's first self-made businesswoman, millionaire of any skin color. And next was Negro Leagues Baseball. And my dear friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill, and now most recent member inductee into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, would say all you needed was a bus, two sets of uniforms, and you would have 20 of the greatest athletes who ever lived. But the Negro League owners don't get nearly enough credence in this process because they were the ones financing these teams. And they were the drivers of that economic boom that we saw because wherever you had successful black baseball, you typically had thriving black economies. So this opportunity that we are embarking on collaboratively to bring Major League Baseball to Nashville and looking at a location that could be game-changing there in Nashville that could spawn opportunity for so many folks, but also do exactly what Major League Baseball has said it wanted to do as it continues its quest toward improving diversity, equity, and inclusion within its sport. And so this is groundbreaking. And again, from a very self-serving standpoint, this would be a game changer for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You know, yes. So we're super excited 
about folks like yourself, Dave Stewart, John Lohr, all of those who are giving of their time and effort and insight to try and make sure that we've got a game plan that is airtight, that when it comes time to pitch this project, that we will be, I think, as representable as anyone and your great city, Nashville, is ready. Oh, there's no yes, question. Yes, we are. Yeah, no, 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 Nashville is ready. <laughs> <laughs> we're, wildest, we're, we're definitely excited. We are yeah, definitely no, excited. You know, in, in your wildest dreams, here's a football man that's involved in one of the most game-changing baseball uh, possibilities ever. You know, so who knows? Right. Things operate, I guess, in the end, the way that they are supposed to operate. Oh, Yeah. Now, let me let me ask you as a coach and a former player. Are losses more difficult as a player or as a coach? As a as a player, um, because you 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 put in all the hard work, you grind. It's it's physically taxing. It's mentally taxing. It's spiritually taxing. um, And you don't understand the reason why you lost and but as a coach i've learned to embrace the losses you know tom landry said you don't know how to you don't know how to lose you'll never learn how to win so you have to learn how to lose in terms of not accepting losses or accepting failure but finding the lessons in it what's the lessons that are learned where's the blessing at where are the teaching moments and there's plenty of teaching moments. We just had a uh, loss, lost a game against a team ranked 12th in the country, played at their place. They're 30 and four, um, a home record on the red turf out in uh, Eastern Washington. And we had our opportunities to win. Uh, we went up 19 to 14 at one point, driving the ball, wind up turning the ball over twice in our, in our territory. They, they capitalized on that. Long story short, we were down by 10 going in the second half, uh, tied the ball game up, and they went up by one score with about two minutes to go into the game, and we're driving to, A, either go into overtime or a score and go for two and possibly win the game. And this is against a team that has tremendous success in, play, in the playoffs. They've been in the play, FCS playoffs the last 10 years straight, won 10 ball games. Veteran teams, established program. They don't panic under pressure. And here we are trying to find out who we are. Mm-hmm. So the lesson here is we wind up rushing for over almost 300 yards, had almost 500 yards of offense, and it came down to two turnovers for us and not getting off the field defensively. Lost a slew of our starters to injuries on, deep, on the defensive side of the ball. Lost our starting linebacker to targeting. Played the majority of the game with kids – that were young and had to be developed. So the lesson there is that no matter what, we don't quit. We continue to grind and we're getting closer to being that elite team we need to be. So for us, it's about the details. It's about um, understanding that when we say it's a six inch step, it has to be six inches, not seven, not eight, not 12, six inch step. Because that opens up, allows the running back to see the entirety of, of the what the defense is doing, so we can have the front side of the cutback. 
or seeing having eye discipline, not looking at the quarterback, we're looking at your work downfield for for defensive backs, hand placement for for tight ends, not getting on the outside, but getting in the inside in terms of our three T's. We talk about target, uh, thumbs up, tight elbows with the finish. You see what I'm saying? So all of those things we're able to now teach and now grow from that. So we'll we'll be a, a much better team later in the year as we grow forward. So I've learned now as a head coach, you never lose. You're learning. The only way you lose is if you don't correct what's not being taught correctly or what's not being coached correctly or what you're or tolerating uh, mediocrity. So I, I look at it as, yes, it stings when you lose. You don't ever want to lose. But the opportunity for you to get better mentally, physically, to enforce your culture in terms of how, what you want to be and really separate the guys that, eh, that are not really committed to the guys that are truly committed and the guys that are on the fence to get them to come up to that next level. So we're constantly bringing guys to buy into what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And they begin to police themselves. So, you know, the thing for this week is to do your job. And if your job is to make sure that, hey, I have my operation in terms of what I do as a quarterback, I must be organized. I have to have my thought process. I have to know where my reads are. I got to know the structure of the, the secondary. If it's too high or single high, single high, where I'm going to go with the ball, what my progression is. I have to open up a certain way. That is your job. Your job is not just to make the play. Your job is to be organized and detailed and to the nuance, understanding exactly what you have to do for that play to be successful. And then your talent takes over under the, under that operation. So, so yeah, the answer to your question is short. I, uh, I, I think it's, it's harder as a player because you don't understand as a coach what's being taught or how, how to accept uh, a, a loss. Yeah. Well, and what, and what I love about you and obviously Nashville has been your home for quite some time. But this resurgence in interest in HBCUs now with having names like yourself affiliated with these programs, because in many ways, Eddie, the HBCUs were trending down the same road that the Negro Leagues had because... Major League Baseball came in and realized that there was this tremendous talent pool, this reservoir of great talent, and that somehow or another, we need to go get some of this. And then I think back to the history of the HBCUs, particularly from an athletic standpoint. HBCUs have for long been providing tremendous educations for so many people. Mm-hmm. because for so long we couldn't attend mainstream universities. Those athletic programs were flourishing. And then all of a sudden, when divisions like the SEC open its door and say, you know what, we're going to admit blacks into our programs, and they started to siphon so much of that great talent away from those HBCUs, we saw the program uh-huh. start to decline. But now what we're witnessing now. And, and, and I just, I mean, I take great pride in what I'm seeing is the work that you all are putting in now again to make people pay attention to what we've known about historically black colleges and universities for quite some time. But to see this resurgence and in interest 
in HBCU athletic is really gratifying to me. What does that aspect of your role mean to you? Oh, wow. Um, you know what? It's, it's a, a wonderful responsibility to, uh, to embrace that, that role, that, that part of uh, this op- opportunity. Um, every day that I wake up, I, I think in terms of not wins and losses, but how I can be a blessing to the student athletes and the students here at our university and to show them that all things are possible and to encourage them to be their best selves every single day and uh, to eliminate the box in terms of what you can be, you know, don't search for just the job or the paycheck search for the purpose. Mm -hmm. And if you continue to do that, then God's going to guide you. Like a job is, is a training ground for your purpose. Like the NFL was a, a pathway to my purpose. It wasn't, it didn't define me. So, um, I, I, um, I take it very, very seriously. I don't look at it as, uh, you know, for me personally speaking, like, um, I am leading the charge for HBCUs and I'm, you know, helping change the culture and all of that. That's fine. I'm just helping humanity. I'm helping, enhance the university uh, and take it to another level in terms of sustainability of, of excellence at every corner. I mean, every, every university has its issues, uh, but mainly for HBCUs, let's, let's keep it, you know, uh, real. But we get in our own way sometimes and it's antiquated methods in terms of doing business. It's how we view certain things, not willing to be flexible just business ethics in terms of being professional in a timely fashion, yeah. uh, forward thinking, um, and really, you know, cross migrating your resources to benefit the university. And ultimately going back to servicing our student athletes, we are serving our student athletes. That's our end user. It's not about getting a paycheck and you know, showing up Monday through Friday and eating in the cafeteria and getting a paycheck and checking your boxes, but you know, you're making yourself available to the student athletes because they're looking for guidance. They're looking for education. They're looking for hope. They're looking for examples that, Hey, I I'm aspiring to, to be um, all that I can be. Who, who emulates that, who represents that, you know, and it's up for us as coaches, as teachers, as counselors, or any position that you hold at this institution to be just that. And, um, that's that's what I that's what I embrace the most, and, and 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 I so appreciate that because again, one of the things that we talk about as it relates to the Negro Leagues and why the Negro Leagues were so important, and quite frankly, when we lost the Negro Leagues, we lost this aspect of it was that when what segregation did was mm-hmm. it forced ownership, it forced us to own to have our own. And so while we were relegated into isolated worlds, we essentially had everything that you needed within those confines of those isolated areas. And the Negro Leagues brought in a level of leadership. So now, as I've said on this program before, Satchel Paige got his hair cut. 
in the same barbershop I got my hair cut. Satchel mm-hmm. Page worship in the same church I did. Buck O'Neill, the same thing. He was eating in the same restaurant that I was eating in. And so when I saw them, Eddie, I did not just idolize them for their athletic prowess. I wanted to emulate them as men. And, and, and we lost a little bit of that as things started to, I guess some would say progress, uh, other opportunities open up. And so for these young men who are part of your program to be able to identify up close and personal with someone who has had success at virtually every level in which you've, from a high school football player to a collegiate football player, NFL football player, a successful businessman, you've you've done it at every level. And I think that is just so vitally important that they see that this is attainable because they can reach out and touch you. They can reach out and touch you. They're not watching Eddie George just on social media or on TV. They're with you every single day. And they're absorbing the things that you're saying, but I think it becomes readily identifiable and attainable because your presence is there. They can see it and feel it and and understand that, okay, I can have this same level of success in whatever I put my heart, mind, and soul to as well. Yes. It it is being that person every single day. It's being me. The best advice I've I've gotten uh, as a head coach is to be yourself and to put your thumbprint on the program as, as you see fit. And in doing that, you have to be held. I have to be held accountable to high standard seen and unseen. You know, I'm not going to sit up here and ask my student athlete to do something I haven't done or wouldn't do or am doing. So, um, it, it is coaching is such a, um, a position that God ordains you to do. It's a great profession, but it is a calling. And you have to, got to be uh, responsible with that calling because you are overseeing and you are a guardian of a few hundred lives. Mm-hmm. You know, 110 young men are looking up to you for guidance. And like to your point, to have principles that take them into their regular lives and to help guide them to their, to their purpose, not just win ball games and get championship rings. That's a part of it. But the real goal is showing them how to fight through adversity, showing them to be responsible, uh, going to class and, and, and getting a, a valuable education, being a good steward of your blessings, being a, a wonderful person in the community, operating with integrity, you know, being transparent, um, all those things, it happens in the course of a game and you want to be held at a high standard. You, your, your choices is decisions and consequences, choices and de- decisions and consequences. <laughs> and, uh, that's, that's what it, it comes down to, you know, in terms of you know, teaching these young men to, um, be their best selves. And again, that's something that I can appreciate. And many of those qualities that you just rolled off are things that I think readily identify with this story of the Negro Leagues. And and that's why it's so special to have this relationship with you, the relationship that we're developing 
with Tennessee State University Mm -hmm. uh, as part of this effort. HBCUs play such an important role in the Negro Leagues. And it's one of the facts that is very little known, but very profound. Uh Over 40% of the athletes who played in the Negro Leagues had some level of college education. Less than 5% of those who played in the major leagues at that same time had any college education for the simple reason that the major leagues then did not want you to go to college. They grabbed you right out of high school, put you into their farm system, and then had you eventually work your way to the big leagues. Well, the Negro Leagues didn't have that kind of sophisticated farm system. So they so oftentimes trained on the campuses of historically black colleges and universities they would play the black college baseball teams and then recruit a great deal of their workforce from those HBCUs. So this mindset that the athletes in the Negro Leagues weren't smart enough to play in the major leagues was absolutely ridiculous because they were actually brighter than their counterparts. And again, Jackie Robinson walks into a locker room where he was likely the most intellectual being in that locker room. Although mm-hmm. he didn't go to an HBCU, but he had attended UCLA. But mm-hmm. my dear friend, he's still with us. The great George Altman, who came to Tennessee mm-hmm. State University as a basketball player and would end up playing for the Kansas City Monarchs for my friend Buck O'Neill. And Buck would then send him to the Chicago Cubs. And George has a prolific major league career, goes over to Japan, extends mm-hmm. his career He is still with us. He lives in St. Louis. He is very proud of the fact that he went to TSU. Uh, And like I said, he was a great basketball player at TSU. That's what he came there to be a student athlete, but to play college basketball and was involved with some great teams there at TSU. And so the list goes on and on of legendary Negro League stars who were college educated athletes and so it makes me even more prouder to have this affiliation with you with that great university there in Nashville and makes me even more excited about the future as we look at bringing Major League Baseball there to Nashville and having that team be called the Nashville Stars the first ever time that a Negro Leagues team could considerably be named as a major league franchise. And that's going to be groundbreaking. I'm so excited to have you as part of our team. Uh, I commend you for the work that you're doing. I look forward to seeing you soon. And yes, more sir. importantly, I thank you for being on Black Diamonds. Mr. Eddie George, great to see you. And thank you. Wow. Continued success there at TSU. And I look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you, man. Thank you so much, Bob. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on the Negro Leagues and Legends of the Game, please check out our website at nlbm.com and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, with additional voiceovers by Donnie Samuels. Special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno.
Sirius XM Podcasts.